Hello, welcome to Sojourn. Please start making your way back to your seats. Again, this is Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God and the Father. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. Glad to gather with you on this uh, Sunday before Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, It's good to be up here. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. At Sojourn, just looking forward to jumping into God's Word with you this morning. Uh, And so let's just go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless our time in His Word. Father, we come before you this morning and we just want to acknowledge you and praise your name this morning. And so God, we ask that as we are acknowledging your presence and acknowledging your name and praising you this morning, that you, God, would be our refuge and our strength today. I pray as we open up your word and as we are confronted with the truth of your word and who Jesus is, God, would you help us to find rest in that? Help us to, in the midst of hearing words this morning and looking at your word, help us just to be attentive this morning, to be focused this morning. We just ask God that you would speak to us, that you would help us to hear as you speak to us. And God, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus this morning so that we might follow Jesus so that we might show Jesus to the world around us. We give you thanks for our time to be together, this blessing that it is to gather together as your church. So may you be honored this morning. May your name be lifted high. May you get all the glory and praise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I recently got a new phone, and so before I went and got my new phone, I was trading in my old phone, so I needed to back up uh, all the photos that I had on my phone. I had like a thousand photos on my phone that I wanted to make sure that were definitely saved on my computer before I exchanged phones. You know, I, that's how we do photos now is just kind of take a ton of pictures on our devices and put them on our computer. At my parents' house, they have shelves with binders of photos in them. They're called photo albums. Uh, and so that's how we used to do things. But so many of us now have digital photo albums where we have all these chronological uh, pictures throughout life and different things that are going on in our lives. And it's always fun for Amy and I to go and look at those photos. And I think one of the downsides of having them all on my computer is that I don't often go look at them. I don't see them. They're not right in front of my face. But, but when we take the photos off our phone, we're kind of reminded, man, we have all these thousands and thousands of photos on our computer. And so we'll take time and look through them and, and look at kind of our life together over these last 15 years and look at our kids and see them grow up as we look through these different photos. And that's kind of the point of a photo album. A photo album tells a story of a life. 
and we can start to look through pictures and see how maybe we've grown over time. If we spend time with our family and have photo albums from our childhood, we can see the growth that's developed and see those awkward stages we walked through in middle school and, and how we've matured, hopefully, uh, past those times as well, and, and just how life has developed over time, how we've grown over time, how so much has changed over time. And that's kind of the purpose to tell this story, these snapshots of your existence. Well, as we jump back into the first half of Philippians chapter 2 this morning, a, a text that we've been in over the last few weeks, what we see Paul doing is giving us a brief tour through a family photo album. And it gives us a snapshot view of not just any life, but the most important life ever, And the story that that, that Paul's relating to us, that he's telling us as he walks through this kind of snapshot view of this life, isn't just for our amusement or our entertainment, isn't to look at and say, that's interesting. It's a story that impacts your life here and now and your life for all eternity. My hope today is that it won't just be an exercise for us in growing in knowledge. There's a lot of theology that Paul talks about in this text. It's maybe one of the most theologically rich portions of Philippians chapter 2. Uh, of the book of Philippians here in Philippians chapter 2. But I don't want us just to think about it from a knowledge standpoint, but that we would understand that God's Word is always meant to transform our lives. It's not just something that we take into our head and say we know more about, we understand more in an intellectual way about God, but that as we are confronted with who God is, it would actually transform the way we live our life. My hope today is that if you already know Jesus that it will help you to know him in a greater way. It will help you to know him in a deeper way, which will lead you to worship him more and more in your life. And if you don't already know Jesus, first off, we're just grateful that you're here this morning, that God brought you to gather with our church. My hope for you is that it will be a step to show you more of who Jesus is so that you might see him. And our hope for you is that you wouldn't just see him, but you would come to know him. See, the greatest question for any person to ever answer is, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And how you answer that question will orient the entirety of your life. And so today we're going to come face to face with the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done and recognize that you cannot not respond to him. You cannot not respond to who he is and what he's done. And so as we dive into this text once again this morning, we're going to see this snapshot view of Jesus, these different pictures of his life and how that impacts our lives. So may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. As we've slowed down over the last few weeks looking at this text, we've seen that Paul is very clearly calling us to something that's absolutely crucial for the entirety of our life and every relationship we find ourselves in, both inside and outside of the church. Something that if you truly take to heart can revolutionize your life, can utterly transform your life. He's calling you and he's calling me to humility and sacrificial love. Instead of thinking so highly of ourselves, instead of being so self, self-focused, instead of caring primarily, sometimes only, about our wants and our desires, Paul calls us to play the background, to consider others more significant than ourselves, to look not only to our interests, but to the interests of others. 
But see, what Paul is calling us to is not just about outward action. It's not just about what we do kind of on the external of our lives. What Paul's calling us to is a posture of our hearts. That what we do with our lives, how we live our lives, is going to overflow out of what's going on in our hearts. That central motivating, where the motivational structures of your life reside. Why you think and do and feel everything that you think, do, and feel flows out of your heart. And so Paul's calling us to change the posture of our heart towards God and towards others. So when Paul says what he says in verse 5, It's important for us to take note of. He's called us to live this way, to live humble lives before one another, but then he says this, have this mind among yourselves. Have a humble mind. A mind that views itself rightly. Not in relation to other people. So when we view ourselves rightly, it's not in comparison with the people sitting around you this morning. It's not in comparison to your coworkers or your neighbors or anyone else outside in your life. This is having a right view of yourself in relation to God. Having this mind among yourselves is also about having an others-oriented mind. A mind that lays down your perceived personal rights in order to more fully and sacrificially love others. Paul says, all of you, all of you among yourselves have this mind. This is a call to the community to be thinking and living this way. When Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, it's not a suggestion. This is a command. What it looks like to follow Jesus. But if we're honest, it isn't a normal thing to do as we look around the world around us and engage with people. It's not a normal thing to have this mind among us. It's not an easy thing for us to do. This is a calling from another world. It's a command from a different king in a different kingdom. But let's be reminded here, because we always need to be reminded of this, that this command to have this mind among ourselves is rooted in a glorious truth. Paul says, the second half of that verse, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you've been united to Jesus by faith, if you have a relationship with Christ, that you have experienced new life in him through his death and his resurrection, you've been fused together with Jesus, never to be torn apart from him. Paul says, this is yours. You can have this mind. I know this seems ridiculous. It seems almost impossible for you to have this. And apart from Christ, it is. But you can have this mind Because you are in Christ. Your ability to have a humble mind. Your ability to love others more than yourself. Your ability to have a servant-oriented heart in life is possible because you're united to Jesus by faith. It's part of the deal. If we go out today and try and find a new car, right? There's, There's all kinds of bells and whistles that can go along with that. And kind of a new feature to new cars now is wireless charging. Right? You can just throw your phone down and it'll charge as you just set it kind of in the dash area of your phone. That's a bonus feature, right? You don't need that in order to drive your car. It's a bonus feature. What Paul's saying here isn't a bonus feature. It's the engine. Like your life doesn't move forward if you don't have this in your life. It's the soil that all other good graces grow out of is this humble mind and humble life. The fruits of the Spirit that Paul calls us to in Galatians chapter 5 are birthed out of a heart of humility. A life and mind that is humble before God and before one another. 
but it doesn't just come about. We don't come into this world as humble people. We don't have these humble minds that work properly. When you come to know Jesus, it doesn't automatically click into place. You aren't automatically and forever humble. When you come to know Jesus, when you place your faith in Christ, it's the beginning of humility. Because even in that moment, as you trust in Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you're acknowledging your need to be saved. You're acknowledging your need to be served. And so it's the beginning of humility, but the road to being humble is just that. It's a road. It's a journey. It's a continual process. See, God is in the business of molding you and shaping you in your life, in your heart, in your mind to be more like Jesus. And we're going to spend more time talking about that next week. It's a progressive process. And so I know next weekend is kind of Thanksgiving weekend. Let me just encourage you to consider, even if you're going out of town, to come back early on Saturday. One, you get to avoid all the traffic on Sunday. But man, next week as we jump into the next text we're going to jump into, it, that also can really transform the way you think about transformation and change in your life. So we're going to talk more about that next week. But this process that God's walking us through in our life, it's progressive because the reality is your natural heart and your natural mind is still inclined to your old way of life. It's still inclined to your old way of doing things. And the world which you find yourself in does not encourage your new life in Christ. The world's constantly speaking towards you. It's constantly preaching at you. It's communicating a message to you, calling you to live your life a certain way, and it's anti-Christ. And so it's not encouraging your new mind in Christ. It's not encouraging your new heart in Christ. It's not encouraging a humble life. Instead, the world we find ourselves in encourages your old, self-focused, self-important life. If our humility was automatic, then Paul wouldn't need to give this command. But see, the core reason we struggle with humility, the core reason we struggle with pride, that we lack humility, because as we said a few weeks ago, we forget our creatureliness. We forget that we are not God. We're not the center of our life. And there's a reason that we struggle with this. And it's a reason I think we need to explore in order for us to really see the beauty and the picture that Paul is painting and sharing with us in verses 6 through 11. See, before we dive deeper into these next few verses, I want to go back to another story, an older story that's still a part of our family photo album. If we go all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures and to the book of Genesis, what we see God doing at the very beginning of the scriptures is revealing himself to us. The first chapters of Genesis are an introduction of God, of who he is, of his power. He calls everything into existence out of nothing, and he speaks it into existence. The pinnacle of God's creation is creating Adam and Eve, creating man and woman in his image. To be made in God's image is to resemble God in character, to resemble him in conduct. And that's what it means to image something. To image something is to display it, to reflect it, but it doesn't mean that you are it. And so he gives them, male and female, dominion and leadership over his creation. The image of God is most fully realized in male and female. That's why we need 
A church that's made up of both men and women, strong in leadership, strong in gifting, strong in love with one another. We cannot image God correctly if we don't do that together as men and women. So God gives this command of leadership and dominion over his creation. God is king. Adam and Eve are vice regents with God. But God gives them a clear command. He tells them to do all these things that are in the, the, the positive. Don't, you can go do this, have dominion. But here's the one thing I'm telling you not to do. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When God gives this command to Adam and Eve, he's giving them an opportunity. He's giving them an opportunity to listen. He's giving them an opportunity to obey. He's giving them an opportunity to submit, to follow, to not just say with their mouths, but to show with their lives that God is God and they are not. But then everything changes. A sly, slithering serpent slithers his way into the garden. Satan in serpent form, and he asks this question of Adam and Eve, speaking to Eve. He says, did God really say? Did God really say that you can't do these things? And we need to see in the midst of that that he's a deceiver and he's a liar. He's the father of lies. He takes God's truth and he seeks to twist it and distort it. And it kind of sounds kind of right, but it kind of sounds kind of wrong. And it's confusing to us. And so there's this distortion of truth And the enemy says to Adam and Eve in that moment, God is afraid. Here's what's really going on. Let me let you behind the curtain to what God's really trying to do and the angle he's trying to take in your life. God's afraid that if you eat of this fruit that you're going to be like him. And so there's an implied question there for us. Don't you want to be like him? Don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to throw off your humanity and claim deity? Claim God's status? Adam and Eve fall for the lie. They fall for this lie that their humanity isn't good enough. Their humanity isn't good enough that they need more. That independence, which is a complete lie, none of us are ever completely independent. That their independence and divinity, which is not possible for them to achieve, will be better than their created existence. And so they reach out and they grasp for this fruit. And in grasping for this fruit, they're grasping to be like God. And so they eat of it. See, Adam desired to be God. But in that moment, in eating this fruit, in attempting to throw off authority, to throw off limitations, in an attempt to throw off humanity, Adam found out how unlike God he really is. And there are really no sufficient words to describe the consequences of this act of complete rebellion against not only God, but rebellion against ourselves. It was cosmically catastrophic. It separated all of humanity from our benevolent, kind, gracious, loving, good king and creator, and it destroyed our humanity. Something God said was good. And we know this by reading biblical history. Genesis chapter 3, we see everything start to fall apart. Genesis chapter 4, we see the first murder take place. And we can read through all, all throughout the scriptures and see the brokenness of this taking place that as we assert our own desires and our own will above that of God's, we continue to struggle to want to be in control. But we can see that as we read 
world history. Conflict after conflict, brokenness upon brokenness, conquest upon conquest. We can look, flip on the news today and see it. See it all around us. Every moment of every day, another story, something else coming out to highlight the fact that we have chosen our own way and it hasn't gone well for us. But we also know this when we just look within our own selves. Because Adam's problem that led to his rebellion is our problem too, all of us. See, Adam's actions are what the Bible calls sin. But sin isn't just about what you do. Sin is about who you are at the core of your being. It's about your heart. And the posture of your heart is no longer humble before your God. The posture of your heart is, I am God. And so Adam's nature was affected by this. And every human being after him is tainted by this, corrupted by sin from our heads to our toes, inside and out. There is no aspect of your humanity that is not affected and infected by it. And we've all inherited it. No one is born into this world not being affected by this reality. But we need to understand something here. The same thing is at the root of that sin for all of us. The same thing. Our core issue inherited from our first parents is that we believe that we're bigger than we are. Our core issue is that as image bearers of God, that's not good enough. We want to be God. Now, you may be thinking, well, I don't, I never think that. And I, and I, I think I, that's probably a good thing, right? I hope you don't wake up in the morning and look at yourself in the, in the mirror and say, I am God, right? We don't, we don't say that. We're not so overt with it in that way. We don't talk in that way. We don't tell ourselves that and certainly don't go around telling other people that. But man, we betray that that's the truth all the time. And it starts from an early age. Every time you assert your will and your wants above God's, that's what you declare. When you believe and act like you're the master of your own life, when you believe that you're an independent being that has no need to submit to authority in your life, when you believe that you are the final authority of your life and that everything else is just suggestion, you betray it when you believe that you're better or more important than others. Every relational conflict, every social issue, every bit of brokenness in our world and in our lives is a consequence of sin because that's what sin does. Sin attaches itself to relationships like a leech, like a tick, and it sucks the life out of it because every moment of the brokenness of our life is you declaring again, I matter more. We betray this when we forget or ignore that we are made from dirt. And that apart from the spirit of the eternal living God breathing life into us, dirt is all we are. See, our core temptation, like Adam, is to be like God. And I think one of the most clear ways that we see this is that we desire to be, as one pastor put it, everywhere at alls. Fix-it-alls, know-it-alls. We want to be in all places at all times to do everything we possibly can do. I know there's a phenomenon, I'll use that term loosely, a fear of missing out, right? Like, I, I, I need to be somewhere. I have to be everywhere. I need to be included in everything. I find my hope. I find my identity. I find who I am and my security and my significance in being involved in everything. We want to be fix-it-alls. 
we see problems and we say, well, I have to find a solution for that, either in your own life or in somebody else's life. And so we get involved and we have maybe noble aspirations in doing that, but we take that burden on ourselves to be the one that remedies everything. We want to be know-it-alls. It is a humbling thing when you realize you don't know everything. And so we get confronted with that on a regular basis. And so we're hungry for more information and more knowledge and more knowledge, but not for the sake of knowing our God better, but so that we know more and people think more of us. And the reality is we know this is a problem because we feel shame when we don't do those things. When you struggle to be an everywhere at all, when you struggle to be a fix at all, when you struggle to be a know-it-all, you feel shame. And we know it's a problem because we shame others when they're not able to do those things. I mean, can we be honest for a second? It is exhausting to try and be something you aren't. It's exhausting. Man, there's good news. There's relief from your exhaustion. There's relief from our sin of trying to be everywhere at alls and fix it alls and know it alls. And our text shows us that today. As we look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul's telling another part of our family story, and it's glorious. Look at verses 5 through 8 again. Let's just read them again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right here in this text, what we see are a snapshot of the grand story of Jesus. We see Jesus' pre-existence. We see his incarnation. We see his death. And we see his resurrection. In verse 6, we see his pre-existence. It's kind of a snapshot of the Son of God, that he is in the form of God. What Paul's saying is he is God. And has existed for all eternity. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 relates the same idea. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Here's what we need to understand about this. This is a core doctrine that we have to stake our lives on. There was never a time when the Son did not exist. Jesus is not a God created by God. He is God. Brought all of creation into existence. Jesus, the Son of God, is the creator of the universe along with the Father and the Spirit. He's existed for all eternity. Something that's impossible for us to wrap our minds around. But in this text, we see his humility emerge in the second half of verse 6. Though he's in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Not grasping this goes back to verse 4. He was not looking to only his own interests, but to the interests of others. And so what did he do? We see another snapshot, another photo in the photo album of Jesus' incarnation. Verse 7, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being born in the likeness of humanity. Now this word emptying here sometimes trips people up. Emptying is not about setting aside his divinity. He empties himself by taking on humanity. It's like putting on clothes that weigh you down. They kind of restrict you a bit. They bring in limitations. Jesus is still fully God. He holds all of the universe together. 
Like, as we get ready to celebrate Christmas and enter into the Advent season, it always blows my mind to think about the fact that Jesus in the womb of Mary, when we can't even see him except under a microscope, is holding the universe together. That's insane. Yet, he has limitations because he's born into this world, taking on humanity. The only thing Jesus did in emptying himself was being poured out for our sake, for the sake of others, and he did so by taking on this form of a humble servant. But I don't want us to miss something here. Before we go on to the next photo, the next snapshot of Jesus' life, is that by taking on humanity, Jesus gives intrinsic value to our physical bodies. And, and I think sometimes in the church, we can, we can kind of separate those two things, that we think about our souls and we take care of our souls, but we kind of disregard the significance of our body, our physical form. We are embodied souls, though. And, and Jesus shows us there's intrinsic value to you if you're sitting here today as a human being. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter if you're the weight that you want to be, if you have the kind of hair you want to have. It doesn't matter what color your skin is or what color your eyes are. The fact that you bear flesh right now, sitting here in this room, you have value. You're beautiful in the eyes of your creator. You are worth his love. He gives it to you. You're valuable for him. He's made that clear to you by pouring out his love on you. And I think in Christianity, within the American church, we need to recover a biblical idea, a biblical view of the human body, to have a right view of it. And sure, having a body is humbling in and of itself because having a body means you have limitations. You need rest. You need to eat. There's things you can't do. But in that moment, what God's doing, what Jesus is saying to us is that human limits are okay. Human limits are good. The only one who doesn't have human limits is God, who doesn't have a body. That's kind of the core of our issue. You aren't him. And so Jesus, we see his picture of his preexistence. We see a picture of his incarnation, but it doesn't stop there. Jesus walks the path of humility. Verse 8, again, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself in his humanity. He humbled himself by being obedient to his Father. He humbled himself by placing the needs of others above his own. Jesus willingly went to a Roman cross to bear the reproach and punishment that was for common criminals. And he experienced the worst of worst forms of execution. Jesus was in a position of power, but his love drove him to a position of weakness for the sake of others, for you, for me. On the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Jesus became a substitute for you in the greatest act of love, the greatest act of humility that's ever been known. Jesus took on your sin and your shame. And so do you see why Paul's saying all this, see what he's showing us in all of this. Christ is our solution. Christ is our remedy for all of us. Jesus did the exact opposite of what Adam did. Adam is a human who grasped at and sought to be God. Jesus is God who let go of his godness and grasped humanity. Adam sought to elevate himself to be something he wasn't, 
Jesus sought to lower himself to be something he made. And Romans 5 tells us that through one man's disobedience, death and condemnation came into the world, but through another man's obedience, life and redemption has become available to us. Our greatest problem of us trying to assert ourselves to be the God of our own lives, Jesus, who is God, comes and rescues us out of that. And what an amazing realization, amazing reality for us to, to think on and never see as old news, but the best news and always relevant news to our life. The story that Paul is telling us here about this family, about our family, is scandalous. God, the creator of all the universe, took on humanity and was even killed by his creatures in order to rescue them? That makes no sense to us. It's certainly the the way that we would do things. But God did just that. He displayed his lavish love by sending his son to lay down his very life for us. This text in Philippians chapter 2 is a hymn of humility. A lot of people think that this, what Paul wrote here, is something the church had memorized, had often talked about, and he's just relating it back to them. It's a, a song of humility, it's a poem of humility, and it displays the downward descent of the sun to lift high the sinner, you and me, so that we can be saints, set apart holy, redeemed. You see, I want us to understand something from this text that as we get ready to move on to other texts in Philippians is this, that the only hope you have to be humble is found in Jesus. The only hope you have to be humble is found in Jesus and the only hope you have to be truly human is found in Jesus. He recovers your humanity. And he recovers it, recovers it through your, his humility. And so if you're tired from trying to be an everywhere at all, find your rest in Jesus. If you're overwhelmed trying to fix everything, find your peace in Jesus. And if you're exhausted from trying to know it all, lay it down at the feet of Jesus. Friends, if you are weary of trying to be something you aren't, put your hope in Jesus. He is all you need, and at the end of the day, he is all you truly have. What we see in this text is God showing us how he's redeeming our humanity by recreating our humanity, restoring the image of God in us. He's allowing you to be the creature he made you to be to embrace that, freeing you to experience that, dependent on him as your good and faithful creator. But that's not the end of the family story that we see in this text. If we look to verses 9 through 11, we see that there's more to what Jesus does for us that we can learn from. Verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Paul's saying, therefore, because Jesus humbled himself in obedience to the will of the Father, because Jesus showed his love for humanity by laying down his life for us, God the Father has highly exalted him. He's given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, that he's king, that he's ruler. Jesus has lordship, but he didn't assert his lordship. He laid it down and the Father gave it back to him. But it came through the path of humble obedience. In that moment, Jesus showed us what a deep love for God and neighbor looks like because everything Jesus did to bring you salvation was the opposite of selfish ambition and conceit. He humbled himself to save you. He humbled himself and the Father exalted him. See, Adam sought to exalt himself in his own timing, in his own way. And that's what you and I often want to do as well. We want a shortcut to exaltation. But Jesus shows us the path of true exaltation comes through humility, and the path of humility comes through death. So the same thing is true for us too. If we want to experience humility and and exaltation, we have to experience death before we experience resurrection. But here's where we need to take note of something that's important for us in this text. If we're not only going to experience redemption, be saved from our sin, but also restoration and renewal of our humanity, then we have to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. What this means is that what we believe about Jesus shapes the entirety of our lives. It shapes every aspect of our actions. And when conflict arises in our life or confusion arises in our life, when you forget that you're a creature in need of your creator, and see, we don't just need our creator to save us, we also need him to lead us in this life. And I'm working this out in my own life now. It's just... I. God's, I guess, sense of humor and love for me is going through Philippians 2 has just been such a a challenge to me personally. Like, God, how do I work this out in my own life? What does this actually look like when I, as I relate to my wife and as I relate to my kids and, and struggling with irritability and frustration and anger over different things and just recognizing, God, I'm, I just continue to want to assert my own will. I want my own desires met. I don't want to love others more than I love myself. There I am again, trying to be in control, trying to be God. And I'm thankful, though, for my Savior and my Lord who leads me and is patient with me. And He is with you as well. Hannah Anderson, in her book, Humble Roots, which I finally have today and will be handing out after the service, she says this Cultivating humility is an exercise in family history and genetic lines. Humility is a correct sense of self, understanding where you come from and where you belong in this world. In other words, humility begins when your confession is Jesus is Lord. And your life and your community and your relationships will be most unified, they'll be most at peace when not only your confession is Lord, but your life matches up accordingly. This summer, I went to a lot of Nationals baseball games, and and so I got used to, I know how to get there and I know how to get back. And so we would go down there a lot. And, but every time I would go down there, I would put in where I was going and coming home, that I'm coming home in the GPS in ways because there's always traffic, right? There's always different things going on. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't take a path that would take me any longer than I had to be on the road. Like wasn't an option for me. 
I could have picked five different ways to go, but I needed to know the shortest possible route to get there. I mean, isn't that, we're so impatient. We're so impatient with so many things in life. We're, we're just like that. Like, God, tell me the, I know where you want me to go. I know you want me to be more like Jesus. I know you want me to experience humility in my life. I know you want me to love others more than myself. And I'm having a hard time with that. Can you just get me there quickly? Like, show me the least possible, least difficult road to get there. But that's not the path that God often takes us on. Hannah Anderson again says the temptation for us in trying to be like Jesus is to bypass Jesus altogether. We believe Jesus to be the perfect humanity and even see his humility as the ideal, but then we strive for the ideal apart from him. Brothers and sisters, we need to see that the only way to experience change in your life is to experience freedom. And the only way you're going to experience freedom in your life is to look to Jesus over and over and over again. Finding your hope in who he is and what he's done. Humbly taking on your humanity so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be set free from the shackles of sin of trying to be like God and be set free from the shackles of shame for the fact that you aren't God. We're not called to be Jesus. We're called to fall at his feet and worship him as Lord. So if God is recreating us in the image of his son through Christ his son, if he's restoring our humanity, then it makes sense that this would be a part of the process and progress of that transformation that we have to die to ourselves over and over and over again in the name of Jesus and for the glory of God. If you want to know where to go in your life, if you want to know where that GPS is guiding you, if you want to see what's going to happen in the future of your life, Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 is the true north passage to guide you and guard you the entirety of your life in order to do just that. And so let me ask you, how's this playing out in your life right now? How's this going for you right now? Paul tells us that through Christ's humility, by taking on our humanity, the Father has highly exalted him so that all humanity will bow and confess Jesus as Lord. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth What Paul's trying to communicate to us is that there is no one who will not confess Jesus as Lord. All people, there will be a day when everyone will confess Jesus as Lord. We can do that by faith now or holy fear later. But there will be no one who will be able to deny the sovereign lordship of our humble Savior. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, John says, By this we may know that we are in him, that we are in Jesus. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so maybe a deeper heart level question beyond how's this playing out in your life right now is are you walking and living in the way of Jesus? Will you follow your Lord or is your allegiance given to another? Friends, Jesus accomplished redemption for your rebellion. He humbled himself for you. So follow him today with an unwavering pursuit of holiness, an unwavering pursuit of humility in every area of your life, striving to love God and love others more than yourself and to tell the world of your Redeemer. He is worthy and he is worth it. We get to celebrate 
communion each week. And as we come forward to take communion, what we're doing in that moment is applying the text from today. We're declaring that Jesus is Lord. As you rise up from your seat and you come forward, you come not under compulsion, but willingly to eat the bread, a picture of Christ's body broken for you, to drink the cup, a picture of Christ's blood shed for you. And when you do that, you're humbling yourself because you're declaring your need for grace. You're declaring your need for a Savior. As you eat and drink today, you're declaring you are not God, but you're dependent on Him. And so if your confession is Jesus is Lord now, I want to invite you to come forward to make that declaration again and be reminded of what Jesus did for you, humbly taking on your humanity so that you might be set free. But some of you may be struggling this morning. You may be struggling and, and maybe you're recognizing in your own life that you've said with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but you haven't been showing that in your life. Well, if that's you this morning, know that this is a community. We want to journey with you and that we want to help you with that. And so I just want to invite you, if that's where you find yourself this morning, that don't rush to the table, but just stay in your seat for a few moments and, and pray and confess that to the Lord. He is gracious and kind. It's his kindness that leads you to repentance. So confess and repent and make that first act of repentance for you to come to the table to be reminded to confess once again that you're not God, that he is. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, that you don't claim Christ as Lord and never have, let me just invite you just to hang in your seat. And instead of coming forward, that you would cry out to God, even pray right now, God, I want to know you, I need to know you, I recognize this in my own life, that I've tried to be the master of my own life and it's not working out well for me. Would you confess that and claim Christ today, take Jesus today, that you might experience new life in him, become a new creation, be set apart as a saint, and then let somebody around you know so we can journey with you in that and help you, and you can help us to follow Jesus. For those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the back, tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink, and what Christ has done for you will be spoken over you. And then let's stand and sing together of our only hope and confession. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning. We just want to thank you. Thank you for humbling yourself for us. Thank you for redeeming us. <clears throat> thank you, God, for restoring our humanity. Jesus, for taking on our humanity to restore it, to recreate us in the image of God. And Father, we pray that you'd forgive us for grasping at being God. We, we struggle with that so many times throughout any given day, any given week. So God, we just confess that to you. We ask you to forgive us of that and to transform and change our lives. Holy Spirit, please help us. Help us to be a humble people. A humble people who view ourselves rightly before you and evidence that by how we interact with others around us. We need your help. Help us to be more like Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.